the British were continuing with their exploitation uh, philosophy. They came, took over the, uh, British East Africa as a part of, as a way of generating income and money, and even the whole train railway was built to exploit. Jebaliko, Tubasanya Kide, Karibuni to my podcast series. My name is Dola Vasami. As part of Expulsion at 50, I had the pleasure of speaking with Samuel Kalibala, a Ugandan currently residing in the United States. Sam warmly shares his story of humanity, hardship, and hard work. I hope you find it interesting and insightful. So just tell me, Sam, like where you grew up and yeah, how was it for you? What do you remember? So we are five miles or eight kilometers from Bali town, a semi-urban village. We had houses lined up by the roadside. The land where we grew food was behind the houses. So we grew our food there. And that's how we earned our living. We grew food, we grew cotton. Uh, and that's how I got my school fees from, from cotton. But we also brewed alcohol. It's kind of like, like a vodka made out of banana wine. Waraji, is it? Waraji, yeah, you know it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a shamba. You had a shamba in the back of the house and you grew cotton. Yes. What, mm -hmm. and, and you also grew vegetables, didn't you? Yeah, and, and matoke, bananas, you know. So that is so we didn't buy food. We ate that food from that garden, but we also uh, and this, my school fees came out of cotton, and uh, and waraji. I had a brother who was already a graduate, and uh, a teacher in Kampala. I had a sister who was married to a rich politician, uh, and then I had my uh, another brother who was just two years older than me, and a sister who was two years younger than me. So some of our income was actually supplemented by those who were well off, the, the, the brother, the big brother and big sister. So what kind of relationship did you have with the Indians? Our village is called Nakaloke. It is small, but still the shops were owned and operated mainly by Indians. So we had Indians of different socioeconomic status. There are those who were well off, they had the shops, and then there are those who had, who were kind of almost living a rural life like us. And so our neighbor, we called him Sana. Maybe, maybe his true name was Sarna or what, but it's Sarna, his wife was half caste. Him, he was Indian. And so they lived near us. They even had a banana plantation. His job was to cook food for Indians in town. So he didn't have a shop, but he was just, he was a good cook, Mpishi. What is surprising that his children, or his child and his grandchildren, liked my mother's food, which was just steamed, not fried and so on. So there was a time when the mother, their mother was trying to make them eat food and not go eat neighbor's foods, but eventually they gave up. So she gave up, she let the kids come and eat like steamed cassava, you know, with no spices, nothing, or steamed maize, they liked it. So we lived such a life, a friendly life together. 
And also in our primary school, we had some half Indian kids who would come to the same school like us and they didn't wear shoes. They, 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 they played football with bare feet. The richer Indians took their kids to an Indian school in Bali town. So we could meet those kids only on the weekends, playing football or playing with toys. They had toys bought from shops and we had toys that we made. For example, I made a ball out of fiber, out of banana fiber. And then this Indian boy brought a ball, a ball that is rubber, that is made, bought from a shop. But then he liked mine and took it home. So we had those kinds of things. And then the other thing is that many people who were not going to school, many kids who were not going to school or who are not studied, they all worked in the homes of Indians, like, you know, houseboys or uh, helping to, to clean the shop and work in the shop or tiny boys on lorries. So everybody worked for an Indian, except those who were educated who worked for government, uh, like civil servants and so on. Our life was fully influenced by Indians. And how did people feel about working in Indian homes and shops? Benefits were many. For the families that had people working in, uh, with Indians, they could get old clothes. All the used clothes from the Indian family would be brought to this African family and they'll be very happy. And even uh, there'll be gifts like sweets and so on that are brought when this person who works in the household of the Indian comes back home. So there was that kind of thing. But at the same time, there was also a level of bullying or showing off, which later on I learned that is not only Indians, it's just anybody who is richer. Because when the Indians left, those who became richer also began bullying us who were poor. But I think that's the, the point that brought in animosity. And so when Amin comes to power, he finds that these people don't have power, but they are richer and they can bully anybody. And so there was that animosity and he exploited that. So when, when the announcement happened, you were 13 years old. So what, mm -hmm. do you, what do you remember from that time? Oh, there was a lot of jubilation. It's only us who had a personal relationship with Sana, who were actually sad because they were really family to us. You know, I, I was telling you about this exchange of children eating food here and there. Eventually, the fence between the two families was broken. There, there, there was no fence anymore. So we used to walk across the very freely. So we were really family. So we felt very sad. Sana was very much a commoner. As I say, he was drinking Waraji. And he was, you know, he was just a cook, he was in Pishi, and he, uh, he didn't have a shop to show off with and so on. He wasn't going to London like the elite Indians were going. He, he was just going to go to India. And, and the, according to his wife, he didn't know where he was going. 
He didn't have an address where he was going. And actually when he left, nobody ever heard about him ever. He didn't write back or anything. Many of these, the shopkeepers and so on, their half-caste families remain. It's just the, the Indian man who was purely Indian who had to leave. So you'd say most people were jubilant to see the Indians leave. And what made it even better for them is that Amin allocated these shops, the shops in town, to black people. So a person who had no shop opened a shop fully stocked and is very rich all of a sudden. And how did the allocation happen then? He appointed military people to be kind of uh, coordinating this. So the, the, the selected people uh, from uh, among petty traders in town and, so, and politicians, and they gave them these shops, including my brother-in-law who was a politician. He was also given a shop. All Muslim, many Muslims go shops. And many, uh, because of the money, they went to pilgrimage. So all of them became hajis, rich hajis. And they got this money and became fat and we call them mafutamingi. Big, uh, to someone with a lot of fat, they became mafutamingis. So they sold out the stock. But after that, they couldn't replace the stock. And that's when the economic hardships started in the country. So following the expulsion, tell us what happened to your life and how things changed for your family. Yeah, so the deterioration of the economy is what changed my life. My brother who was, I say, was a teacher, his salary was no longer enough for him, so he couldn't support us. My sister was married to a rich man. He was a politician. After Amin gave him a shop, Amin killed him, thinking that he was using that money to fund rebels. So poverty descended upon us in my family. And that's when I went to secondary school. We had three white teachers who were still there, but eventually Amin also expelled them. First, I was able to go by taxi, when, when uh, the economy was good, we could afford that, I could take a matatu and go. But the situation got worse, I began riding a bicycle to go to school. And to go to worse, I couldn't even maintain the bicycle, so I began walking to school. That was three miles from my home. Those who had been depending on working for Indians, some of them actually became wise enough, they became petty traders, because they had watched the trading habits of Indians. And some of them actually became rich. Then others became smugglers of coffee. Because of the economic embargoes, Uganda could not export coffee. So they used to smuggle it across Mount Elgon. Zimbabwe is in the east, it's near Kenya. I nearly got convinced to be sidetracked because those boys could smuggle coffee and come back buy themselves very nice clothes and everything and buy radio cassettes and so on, I began envying them. The, I think my father and mother didn't buy any new cloth for themselves for all the years that I went to school, in secondary school and up to university. They just used the old clothes they had, such that when 
I went to invite them to come to my graduation at university. My mother looked at me and said, I have nothing to wear. I could not believe it. I said, are you really refusing to come to my graduation? But truly had never bought any new cloth. Every bit of money she had was to pay, to pay my tuition. So I used my first salary to buy my mother a dress and my father uh, uh, something nice to wear to come to my graduation. That's lovely, that's lovely. So let's just talk a little bit about the expulsion. Did you see it coming? Yes, even before Obote was overthrown, he had proposed a 51% share by government in Indian businesses. And in fact, the speech that he gave in Singapore before, that was a Commonwealth meeting, before he was overthrown, was focused on that. And it was thought that the British were so unhappy about his speech that they instigated his overthrow. So it had been coming. It is easy for an African politician to use a, 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 an elite minority of Asians to use it as a scapegoat for failing to improve the socioeconomic status of the people. It is easy for me to say, you see, all the money is taken by these people. You know, you should be rich, you should be richer. This is your country. This is your money, they're exploiting you. So Abote already had the, uh, the policy of um, what I would say is addressing the inequalities in, the, mm -hmm. in terms of the economy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that was not a bad thing, was it? It would have worked well if, if he had stuck to the 51%, 49% and not 100% uh, nationalization of Indian property. But I don't know how the Indians would have received it and how the British uh, would have received it, whether they would have opposed it. But that's what he was proposing. So why do you think that the British didn't like the idea? Well, the British were continuing with their exploitation uh, philosophy. They came, took over the, uh, British East Africa as a part of, as a way of generating income and money, and even the whole train railway was built to exploit. So when the when the Indians remained there, I think they were encouraged to bank their money in London. What you're saying, Sam, is that it, it suited the British to have this three-tier system and to maintain the status quo. And so Abote's policies like Nyerere had socialist leanings and they were, you think they got scared of that? Yes, it did. Oh yeah, they got scared of that. So people say that Amin was brought in by the British. What do you think about that? Yes. So they, they brought him in to remove Obote who had socialist tendencies. So then what happened between Idi Amin and the British that he turned against them? So a foolish man on top who would rule the country according to what the British would advise him to do. Because he was after all not educated. 
and he was definitely not an orator like Obote. He couldn't talk and you know mobilize people and make them understand or that they're being exploited by external forces. Yeah, so he had spontaneity, uh, unexplainable changes that he could make. He discovered that he was being used and he discovered that blacks were inferior even in Uganda because of the way the economy was running. And then he also wanted to gain cheap popularity. So by declaring what he called the economic war, he said, I'm a soldier, I'll fight this economic war and bring wealth to everybody. So I'm going to give all the wealth to black people. I'm a good man. For all of you, I'm going to, to bless you with wealth, with wealth. But because he was not educated, he didn't understand the implications of economic sanctions because he actually had a view that he can make money, he can make Bank of Uganda make money. So there's no way anybody can stop him. And it is rumored that one time he was told that, that foreign currency is the problem. Then he said, who is foreign currency? Bring him to me. <laughs> so to get taken up by cheap popularity and think that you can solve a big economic problem by simply forcefully redistributing wealth from people and giving it to others, and then everybody becomes rich. And then, you know, how was it on a, on a day-to-day -day basis for you? Yeah, so on a day-to-day -day basis, the, there was that issue of inflation where a lot of money was chasing very few goods. For some key goods, like sugar, soap, salt, we had to line up. We moved from new clothes to used clothes. That, so now the new market was that of uh, uh, used clothes that were brought in. And so we began buying those. So the, yeah, so the inflation got worse and worse. We had to carry more money uh, to buy fewer goods. Rates on some things, even that sugar that we lined up was, was on a fixed price that was low, government price. Even school fees was at a government rate. Salaries were also at a government rate. So uh, we had that, that kind of uh, economic parallels where the black market flourished at, a, at prices that were 10 times higher than the official rates. So Sam, the expulsion took place almost 50 years ago. What are your main reflection and insights that you wish to share with us? Well, it makes me first of all feel that the economic problems of developing countries are complex and that no, nobody should try and make a simplistic solution. The British set up the system that the whites were on top, the Indians were in the middle, and the blacks were at the bottom. But this doesn't mean that we should give up. I think uh, the, the efforts, first of all, giving a good education, 
to every person in Africa is very important, but education is not enough. I think efforts at industrialization are very important. Industrialization is something that Africans were denied. So Indians being the middle, middle people in the economy, they took on industry and Africans uh, got educated, they went into civil service, uh, you know, uh, running the government business, but nobody learned about industrialization. And I think that is where we are in big problems in Africa. We have zero, zero, zero ability at industrialization. Yeah, but it's interesting, Sam, because the system was set up for the mm -hmm. cotton to be grown in Uganda, but the cotton to be taken out of the country and processed somewhere else. Yeah. The processing never happened in the country. So it came back as cloth mm -hmm. at a higher value. So mm -hmm. it suited the British and the mm -hmm. other colonial powers to yeah. take the coffee out, to take the tea out, to take the copper out, to take the gold out, but never investing in the in the industrialization yeah, process at home, so it's a it's a it's a it's a deep seated system that yeah. is, that you know that it was 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 created to serve uh, the the population in 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 Europe, mm. whether it was Belgium, Netherlands, Britain, France. <laughs> Thank you for listening. If you have any comments or suggestions to share, please get in touch. The email address is expulsion50 at gmail.com. You can also post comments on the Facebook group or on Twitter at Expulsion50. Till next time, Kwaheri.